from Philippians, the prophet and the apostle, reminding us of who Jesus was, reminding us of how utterly upside down Jesus made our understanding of this world. In the masterful musical Hamilton, anybody like that musical? Anybody know it? Yeah. There's a a song in there called uh, The World Turned Upside Down. Anybody remember that song? Anybody sing it for me? The world turned upside down. Right? Yeah, you got that? All right, so you got that tune in your head. So the the song and the, the story, that particular song is about the Battle of Yorktown. Battle of Yorktown was a defining moment in the Revolutionary War. Uh, in fact, it was the final battle in the Revolutionary War. And uh, the American and the French forces combined to defeat uh, the British forces. Uh, Lord Cornwallis had to surrender. And uh, at that moment, there was this sense that everything that had happened, uh, everything up to that point in the British rule and the monarchy, everything kind of turned upside down, Right? And, uh, of course, the writer of the musical and that sort of thing has a great way of just kind of bringing that to life and helping you to experience that in a whole different kind of way. Uh, I'm a big fan of Hamilton. But uh, that particular song, The World Turned Upside Down, and that particular moment in history, this battle of Yorktown, uh, was kind of what came to my mind as I started thinking about our subject and our verses for today. The world turned upside down. There's this sense that Jesus in his life is one that turns everything on its head. The what he, what he stands for, what he came, how he came, what he came to do, how he came to live, that sort of thing. Everything gets turned on its head. And I'd like to take you with me today on a little bit of a journey as we walk through that. And in order to do that, I, quoted for you earlier, Matthew 19.30, I actually want to back up, and if you have your Bibles, you want to open up the Version Bible app, whatever you want to do, I'm going to start, or you can just follow along with me, with Matthew 19.27. So we have to back up a little bit to kind of get the context for this story. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now, you have to understand the context, right? We're jumping into Scripture in the middle of a story here. So let me give you the background, give a little context. Jesus has just had an encounter with somebody in Scripture we know as the rich young ruler. All right? And Jesus had this encounter and told him, you got to go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. Right? And the rich young ruler, who's got a lot of stuff and a lot of status and a lot of power and wealth, he, he decides that's a little... Too much, right? And Jesus goes on to teach about that, and he says, you know, it's actually harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So it's interesting. Peter's probably processing all of this, and he's like, huh, I never never thought about that. Well, that's cool, because Jesus, look at us. Look at what we've done for you. Like, we've left everything. We've left our families. Look at us. You said, come follow you, and here we are. So, like, 
what then will there be for us? So that's the context, right? Now, Peter is asking something maybe he never considered before, like, okay, what comes next? Well, let's just think for a minute. What is he thinking? What's, what's going through his mind? Undoubtedly, he's thinking about status, right? He's thinking about his power and the privilege that comes with being a follower of this Messiah, this King. Like, wow, what's this going to look like? He's thinking hierarchically, isn't he? He's thinking that there's something to ascend to, to grow into. That somehow he and the disciples are just a little bit more special. That they got something awaiting them. And of course, if you read on in verses 28 and 29, Jesus assures them that, you know, they are going to have some rewards in heaven. In fact, they're going to sit on 12 thrones and they're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's something to this idea of rewards. But then Jesus ends that particular interaction with, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. In other words, hold on, Peter. You're thinking about this the way the world thinks about this. And I want you to step back for a minute and recognize that my kingdom is different. We all belong to the family of Christ. And I could go in and we could talk a little bit more about the difference between Matthew's account of this and Mark's account of that. And we could unpack that a little bit where Mark kind of tells us that it's the rewards that are going to come in this life, not just in the life to come. And we could talk about Matthew's perspective being a little bit more about the future and and about the king and, and trying to prove that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And we could talk about all of that. But the bottom line here is that Jesus is trying to temper Peter's enthusiasm for ultimate rewards by saying, you know what, even if you are first, you might still end up being... There's, there's a whole big kingdom out there. There's a whole lot of people. And some who you don't even know might end up being at the head of the line. It's important for us to think about that because as we get into chapter 20, it becomes the context for a parable. It's called the parable of the vineyard. And I'm not going to read the parable of the vineyard. I'm going to give you a different... I'm going to give you my own parable of the vineyard. How about that? All right? So I'm going to put it in some modern language and see if it doesn't help bring it alive. But I can assure you that those who were listening to Jesus well understood the parable of the vineyard because they would have been thinking all the way back to Isaiah chapter 5 where the prophet kind of relates the people of Israel to a vineyard and uh, the producing of not just good grapes, but very wild grapes. And, and all. So the, the concept of a vineyard runs throughout the Old Testament. People would have understood the parable of the vineyard. But my sense is that you and I probably don't understand that quite the same way. We don't relate to it quite the same way. It's not difficult, but let me see if this works for you. All right? You good with it? Can I try this? I'm trying something. It's a little risky. Go with me, all right? I'm not rewriting scripture, I promise you. I'm just putting it in my own words, all right? So Wegmans needs some day labor to unload some trucks, to stock some shelves, and to clear out some old inventory. It's going to be one eight-hour shift per day, and the project will take one week. 
they advertise that they'll pay $600 for the week, and you need to arrive by 6 a.m. on Monday morning. So a whole slew of people sign up, and they arrive, and they get to work on Monday morning, bright and early. Of course, the news outlets pick this up, Channel 13 and Wham 1180, and they, they get on to this, and they interview Colleen Wegman, like, oh, this is cool, like some jobs for the community, and, and they're all into this, and of course, Colleen Wegman is the president of Wegmans, and she says quite explicitly that anyone still interested should come to the warehouse. There's plenty of work to be done. And by Tuesday, some more people show up because they need some extra cash. The foreman welcomes the extra hands, and, and a few more come in on Wednesday and Thursday. In fact, a couple of folks even pop in on Friday. They weren't sure if this was a real deal, and they couldn't quite fit it into their schedule, but they got there, and they got in line on Friday. The project ended at 2 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and everyone hopped in a line to get paid. They asked those who got there later in the week to be first in line, because what they're trying to do, of course, in our age of metrics and measurements, they want to track how many hours people spent, because if they have to do this again, they want to have a pretty good idea of how many hours were going to be worked and all that sort of thing. So those who were last got in line first, and then they kind of worked their way back. And as they were going through the line reporting their hours, they gave them their information about where checks could be sent, and then they decided, you know, are you going to get a direct deposit or are you going to get a check in the mail? And, and everybody who went through said, the first ones, we're going to pay you $600 like we promised. And they're like, wow, that's cool. Like I just showed up to, sure, like I just showed up today. Friday, like, you're going to pay me 600 Yep, that's what we promised to pay. And as they go through the line, they go through the line, and by the end of the line on Monday, those who had gotten there on Monday, they were told the same thing. You're going to get paid $600. Anybody here get offended by that? Like, I showed up like you told me to, on Monday morning at 6 a.m., and you're paying me the same amount that somebody who showed up on Friday morning at 8 o'clock. What? Hmm. So, one of the workers kind of looks at the foreman and says, you know, we've been here all week. Uh, We did exactly what you asked us to do, and we showed up at 6, and don't we deserve to be paid more? How come you're giving them the same amount as us? Anybody think you might be that person who would ask that question? I, I might be. Like, my sense of justice is kind of like rising up, right? I would be that person. And of course, the foreman responds, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Friend. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for $600? What would I have to say? I want you to notice there the use of the word friend. It actually is in the scriptures if you look it up. The word friend there. It's actually only used two other times in Matthew. And both of those instances where the use of the word friend is, the friend is in the wrong. One of those uses is in Matthew 22, and it's regarding uh, the one who came to the wedding feast without proper clothes. Of course, the other one, if you were to dig into it, is in Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus calls Judas friend. 
The idea is obviously the irony of the word friend, isn't it? In our story, everyone signed up. They agreed to work for $600 for the week. Colleen Wangbin decides to pay everybody the same amount. It's her money. She can decide to do what she wants with her money. She makes the call, and nobody's treated unfairly. Because we all agreed to work for the same amount of money. But we all know we'd be a little offended. It seems unfair, but it's really not In fact, some of us would even overlook the fact that Colleen Wegman has been very generous to a few people. My guess is that the labor unions and the news outlets would pick up on the fact that everybody got paid the same amount and they'd focus on the injustice of the ones on Monday and forget that she was hugely generous to those on Friday. Because that's how our world tends to think. And therein lies our challenge. Jesus is turning our notion of fairness upside down. His grace shows no bounds. The parable ends with, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. There it is again. That same concept. Linking this parable back to this interaction that Jesus has had with Peter. The first and the last. What is he trying to say? Peter, your notion of the way the world works has to be changed. Wait a minute, where have we heard that before? Oh, we could go back pages in our scripture to chapter 16 when they're at Caesarea Philippi, couldn't we? We've just had a few Sundays talking about that interaction. You see, all of us, when we come into faith and when we come into understanding and trying to learn a little bit more about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, are confronted with our understanding of the world and the way the world is supposed to work, and we're confronted with Jesus' kingdom and how the kingdom is supposed to work and how His grace is extended for all. Jesus says to us that your status, our position, our wealth, even our amount of sacrifice. Look at all we've done for you. They're not what counts. What counts is God's grace. Jesus is here laying out for the people that his kingdom was not one based on merit. It was not one based on earning or achieving. Fairness is rooted in grace which is available to the deathbed convert the same as it is to the saint who has given their life to Christ over their entire life. The grace of God is best understood for anybody that doesn't understand it as unmerited favor. You can't do anything to earn God's grace. And he extends it to all of us the same. We don't earn it. And those that come to the Lord all receive the same reward, the same eternal destiny. But some of us who are first, those who figured it out early in life, they might be last, maybe never fully purged of the idea 
that they actually deserve something. And those who are last, those who know they don't deserve it, but simply believe that somehow God still loves them, they will be first because they simply relied on God's grace and his love. In case some of you wonder where Paul gets it in Ephesians, you might remember these verses. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And not by works, so that no one can boast. Jesus had already laid it out in his Gospels. Paul was just picking up on a theme that he had already laid out. I was reading this week from a devotional that I have, and the author's name is J.D. Walt. Uh, He writes a devotional called The Seedbed, and I just was struck how similar what he wrote was relating to what I was putting together. So I'm going to quote him here for a minute. It says this, If I am to love others as I love myself, and my regard for myself is founded on the ways I have managed to distinguish myself, or failed to distinguish myself from everyone else, then I will love others to the extent that they also have distinguished themselves. And to the extent that they have not, I will not value them. But if my regard for myself is founded solely on the value accorded to me by the love of God, then I will love others on the basis of the very same value accorded to them by the love of God. This approach actually destroys the world's value system of least and greatest. It's good to take some time to check our hearts. Do I rejoice with those who are saved, who are new to the church, Am I still motivated to grow in my love for the Lord, knowing that my effort and my devotion will yield the same destiny as someone who may not know the Lord right now or right up until the end? And if I'm challenged in any way by those ideas, then God's got some work to do in my heart. I do want you to notice, as you ponder the answer to that question for yourself, that Jesus is patient with us. Now, where do I get that from the Scripture? There's different places I could draw from, but I'm just going to simply say here, it's in the context of this particular interaction that he's having. If you read ahead in Matthew's account, Jesus and his disciples are days away from the triumphal entry. Passion week, we call it. The lead up to the crucifixion. Matthew 21 accounts that. Jesus is days from that interaction with the people laying out the palm branches and all that. He's having this interaction with Peter. He's having this interaction with his disciples. And he doesn't get angry at them. My sense of justice, like as I read the scriptures, sometimes I want to layer on what I'm thinking, right? And in my sense of justice, like these guys just don't get it. And it's almost the end. And God, what are we going to do? Because they're not getting it. And I don't, I don't, what do you want me to? And I start getting frantic, right? Because that's who I am. That's my nature. Because I'm thinking it all has to be figured out before I get there. And God's like, just keep being, 
keep going along. I got this, right? And he's working all the time. And Jesus is teaching and he's patient with them and reminding them that my ways are not your ways. And these thoughts and the Holy Spirit's bringing these thoughts back to their heart and to their mind. He moves on from this interaction that he's had. And he says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Just think about that for a minute. On the third day, he's going to be raised to life, but he's got to go through this painful ordeal. This is the third time that he's mentioned what he's about to experience. We encountered the first one in chapter 16, there's one in 17, and now here in chapter 20, and each time it's getting a little bit more detailed. He's starting to get more and more of a sense of what's about to happen to him. And he's sharing that. And we know that maybe when this was written down years later, maybe they added in some of these facts. So was it this specific? Did he know exactly what was going to happen to him? Maybe not. But did he know he had to suffer and die? I think he did. What did that look like? Maybe he didn't know the exact details, and maybe these were added in when the authors wrote it later. But the bottom line is, he knew he was the suffering servant spoken of by Isaiah. He knew that he was called to come and bring salvation for his people. He knew an awful lot of stuff, and he's trying to prepare them in this context of the first will be last, and the last will be first. And he's just, he's having this ongoing dialogue and you got to love it, right? So here comes James and John. And um, it's interesting. So Matthew says, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Now, just so you know, Mark, when he recounts this story, he doesn't say that it's the mother. He just said James and John. Apparently, Scholars believe that the apostles, being so offended that James and John would do this, that they didn't necessarily want, for historical purposes, the apostles to be viewed this way. So Matthew softens it a little bit and says that it's his mother that came and did it. It's a true story. Read. There's scholarly accounts of this, right? So, was it the mother? Was it James and John? I think we probably know that it was James and John, right? Maybe Matthew's trying to soften the account. What is it you want, Jesus asked. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. So, we get this idea from Jesus as he's responding to them that greatness is not measured by where you sit. Right? We're just on the heels of, I've got to go through all this stuff to suffer and die for you. Greatness is measured by your service. He lovingly is responding to their desires. I also want you to know, um, as you read the answer that Jesus gives, he says, you don't know what you are asking. Now the you is important there, because the you in one of the original languages is a plural you. In other words, he's not talking to the mother of Zebedee's sons. He's talking to the three of them, or if we take Mark's account, he's talking right to James and John. Because you don't know what you're asking. But he does affirm them. 
it does go on to say, you are going to experience some things. You are going to suffer a little bit with me. But that place of status, that's not, that's not what this is about. That's not even for me to assign. That's up to God. We're just here to do our part. Again, James and John, similar to Peter, they want status. The idea of getting what everybody else gets. Remember this parable? Wegmans is kind of, not Wegmans, the vineyard, right? It's floating in their head. The idea of giving up so much doesn't sit well with them thinking that they're going to get the same as everybody else. Greatness to them, even after hearing this, and eat, there's just wrestling. It's still defined by status. It's still defined by power. What better place than to be sitting next to Jesus for eternity, right? Greatness is measured by our service. Of course, the other disciples hear this, and they do get really upset. So Jesus gathers them all together, calls them together. It's a great teaching moment, right? When there's discord, when there's trouble in the ranks, you pull them all together, let's use this moment, and Jesus does just that. And he says this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their high officials exercise authority over them. You know this. You know this in our world, right? I mean, he's talking about them, but... You know that's how countries work. That's how states work. That's how politics works. That's how, you know that's how things work in our world. That's what he's saying to them. But not so with you. Not so with you, Christians. Not so with you, disciples. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what we call a defining moment. The Son of Man, the would-be King of the Jews, was not setting up a monarchy that resembled anything they understood. In fact, it was completely upside down. Everything he stood for turned all of their ideas upside down. He knows how the world thinks and how they think. Authority, power, ruling, achievement, merit, rewards based on merit. It's just not his way. Michael Green in his commentary on Matthew says this, Greatness in the world is determined by status. The kingdom by function. In the world, greatness is shown by ruling. In the kingdom, by serving. In the world's eyes, the great are those who can order others about. In the kingdom, they are those who endure hard times and injustice without complaining. That's a hard one for me. I'm reading a book right now called Just Mercy. Anybody ever read it? story of Brian Stevenson's experience as an attorney helping people get off of death row who were unjustly convicted of crimes they never committed. And it's gut-wrenching. And I'm only on chapter 3. 
It's gut-wrenching. The injustice that it happens in our world all the time. And yet as Christians, that's the kind of thing Jesus invites us to be part of. And I think part of the reason I'm wrestling with it so much is that it's so hard to figure out what to do with injustice. Because it's so pervasive and in some cases so overwhelming. To be invited to experience and live into injustice and not be able to remedy it? I'm working on that one, y'all. I don't get it. That one offends me because it feels like we should be able to change it, to do something about it. And in fact, there are ways, right? There are things we can do, but the reason I'm wrestling with it so much is because Jesus didn't try to change all of that. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Ultimate injustice. But he endured it. Endured the scorn. Endured the pain. Because he could see what the Father was up to. And what he was trying to communicate to us is that he was turning the world's systems upside down, the social structure of our day upside down. And he called it the kingdom of God. Matthew calls it a lot the kingdom of heaven. He would be the king of a new world order. He was patiently helping us to see that it was different than what was all around them. Tim Keller says this, Christianity isn't something that you add. It's an explosion that changes everything you had. And as I read that, and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, how many of us come to faith in Christ and we just simply layer it on to what we already do? We layer it on to our lives and we just kind of take it on and we might add in some disciplines. We might add in the reading of Scripture. We might add in acts of mercy and justice and other things. But we layer it on to what we already know. It becomes an add-on. It doesn't become this fundamental thing that reorients the way we think. It doesn't become this thing that changes how we serve others or deal with injustice. Or It doesn't change us. It just simply gets added on. Because to actually be changed requires some hard work inside of each of us. We're in a season we call Lent. There is a season right now in the church calendar, Lent, that is designed for this kind of reflection. It is designed to go a little bit deeper. It is designed to create some space so that God can come in and open up our hearts and our minds and begin to see Him in a different kind of way. And as He creates space, as we we create space in our hearts and our lives, He fills that with new ideas, with new perspective, with new ways of relating to Him. And the question that we need to be wrestling with is how are we dealing with that? What status have we been seeking? What kind of services are we offering to those who don't fit the mold of the most successful and deserving? What things need to change inside of our hearts? So let me go back with you to the beginning today. 
Isaiah says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. I mean, I knew hashtag for you to deal with. Just take a few minutes and let the Lord speak to us. Let's be in a posture of hearing, of listening. And the worship team will allow us to respond with singing. You might respond by writing. You have pieces of paper in front of you. We call them connection cards. You can write a prayer on there. You can write a praise note. You can write something just to jog your memory for later. If you're new with us, you can fill out one side of that and tell us who you are. We'd love to know who you are so we could connect with you. In fact, we have something, if you're new today, we have something for you at the welcome table out in the lobby. We'd love to share that with you. All of that can be put into one of these offering baskets where you can leave a tithe or an offering this morning as a response, a recognition of who God is in your life. See, there's all ways that you can respond right now. And we're just going to allow you the space to do that. Heavenly Father, we give it to you right now. This time, what's rolling around in our minds, the distractions, the thoughts, the ideas, the challenges... Whatever it is, Lord, we give it to you. We say thank you for it. Lord, we ask you to speak for your servants are listening. 